Coming up today, Matt Burgess explains why all is not well at Firefox, and we find out about the quest to make a digital replica of your brain. You're listening to The Wire Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when Virgin Hyperloop laid off more than 100 staffers, as it said it would be focusing on moving cargo, not people. The pods will, allegedly, travel at up to 1,000 kilometres per hour through a vacuum along magnetic tracks. Major engineering challenges faced by all Hyperloop projects remain unresolved. This was also the week when it was revealed 82% of British firms which have been victims of ransomware attacks have paid the hackers in order to get their data back. According to a survey from security company Proofpoint, the global average was 58%. This was also the week when the UK ended its last legal restrictions relating to coronavirus. From February 24th, people with COVID will no longer be legally required to isolate, or they're still being strongly advised by medical authorities. Access to free lateral flow tests is also coming to an end. And finally, this is the week when a case of wild polio was discovered in Africa for the first time in over five years, sparking worries that the virus could emerge in a continent that had successfully eradicated the virus in 2020. This is also the week when we're recording the podcast in person for the first time in more than two years. I think we left the wide offices before the pandemic in February 2020. Maybe it's just under two years. I think it was the first week of March was our last in-person podcast, so... What a ride it's been. You, you think it was, or have you gone back and looked it up? I've gone back and looked it up. Yeah, okay, so just under two years, we are back in the very glamorous podcast cupboard. Um, how do we all feel? Are we happy to be back? I'm giddy with excitement. I'm very much a fan of doing it in person. It's strange to see all of your faces not in little boxes as we're actually recording. Like, I can literally stare deeply into your eyes, yes, James Templeton, yeah, <laughs> across this table. Without having to, like, look weirdly above into a camera. Yeah, so maybe we'll just stare intensely at each other for the entire podcast. We could, we could. Or not. All right, what did we learn this week? I will come to you first, Amit. I learned about ostrich zebra symbiosis. Uh, So zebra have a good sense of smell and hearing, but relatively poor eyesight. Well, ostriches have good eyesight, but a bad sense of smell and hearing. Research in the 1960s in South Africa found that ostriches sometimes rested alongside zebra, with each species acting as a sentry for the other. Is this an uncommon phenomenon? No, not really. <laughs> it's it's just a cute example of... A, there's a lot of examples of animal symbiosis in the animal kingdom, but this is a kind of example I'd not heard of before where one species kind of senses were, contem- uh, were working alongside the others. Okay, and, and also maybe an unlikely pairing. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a Disney cartoon sort of level of pairing. You expect to see the film version coming out very soon. You should pitch it to Pixar. I will. Good. Uh, Grace, what did you learn this week? Um, This week I learned that in 1999, NASA lost a $125 million Mars orbiter because of a simple calculation error. It turned out that the engineers were using imperial measurements like pounds, inches and feet in their calculations in contrast to NASA's typical calculations, which rely on metric. Uh, It meant that the Mars climate orbiter crashed into the surface of Mars as a result. What's the worst miscalculation you've ever made, Grace? Has it resulted in an orbiter crashing into Mars? Um, something like that, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I was very boringly uh, doing a budget the other day um, and I got the formula in Excel wrong. So the number at the end was confusing, but it didn't result in, um, in anything quite so dramatic. Anyway, there's that. Good.
good to be back in person. Matt Burgess, what's our first story? For our first story this week, we're going to start with a little bit of a uh, question and answer session. Um, And I'm going to do a quick straw poll. What browsers, mobile web browsers, do you use on your laptops and your phones? Amit. Uh, I use Safari on my phone and Chrome on my laptop because I'm a very, very boring default setting kind of person. I do the same, actually, but I feel very strongly about it. It's not the default for me. A lot of people have told me to do something else, but I feel very strongly about my choice. Why, why do you feel so strongly? Safari is better on a Mac laptop. Google is better on an iPhone. Okay, I yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit of a contrarian and also a creature of habit. So a few years ago, I decided to try out Firefox on my Android phone and kind of got used to it, even though it's pretty rubbish. Um, so I use Firefox on my phone and Chrome on my laptop but only because it's a work laptop and some of our corporate systems only work properly in chrome otherwise i'd probably use something else okay so there's a little bit of variety across all of us but largely chrome features in uh, a part of all of our browsing for, for me i'm the same i essentially do use chrome at some times but also uh, use a little bit of safari and also firefox and brave sometimes as well but I write about Sorry, how many devices do you have? Why do you have so many browsers? I just have multiple browsers on different devices and okay. use them for different purposes and occasionally Tor as well if I'm doing something that uh, needs a bit more security and, on a, and anonymity. But that is also not on my work laptop because gotcha. it's not allowed. Um, but the reason we're talking about this is because back in 2008, you might have had very different answers. Back then, Firefox was flying high. So around 20% of the 1.5 billion people who were online around the world at the time were using the browser from Mozilla to navigate the web. In Indonesia, Macedonia and Slovenia, more than half of everybody going online was using Firefox. But Matt Burgess, it isn't 2008 anymore. And as our very unscientific poll shows, not many people are using Firefox these days. In fact, almost nobody is. So across all devices, devices even, the browser has slid to less than 4% of the market. On mobile, it's a measly half of a percent. So there's me and a few other people that are using it on their phones all around the world. So Mozilla's own statistics show a drop of around 30 million monthly active users from the start of 2019 to the start of 2022. So it's safe to say that all is not well at Firefox but what's going on Matt Burgess and how bad is it? Yeah so it's uh, there's a lot to sort of unpick there but essentially at the moment Firefox has around 215 million regular monthly users and that has declined over the last 10-15 years and that has been a sort of gradual sloping decline but uh, there are many sort of complicated parts that have led to the decline of Firefox's market share. A big one of those uh, was the rise of Chrome. So Chrome was released in 2008 and has since grown hugely. It is obviously a very good browser with huge amounts of money and resources spent on it. Thousands of people working on Chrome's development Um, but its existence alone isn't really the only reason for uh, Firefox's decline. So over this period, we've also seen the rise of the mobile market. So back in 2008, most of us would have been doing a lot of our browsing on the desktop. Um, The iPhone was only released the year before. Um, The world was a very different place in terms of how we got online and the ways that we got online back then. Um, And now the the biggest two browsers on mobile are chrome and safari apple safari um, both of these are pretty much as we've sort of already alluded to the de- the defaults on ios and android devices so w- firefox not having a place on uh, as a default on these has obviously impacted it and others browsers ability to grow a market share um, and there have been uh, legal cases that uh, are 
against uh, sort of anti-competition laws against uh, Google in particular and Android for sort of including its uh, Chrome browser as a default. Uh, but many people would argue that those sort of legal cases came far too late and Google had managed to essentially corner the market on mobile um, before these cases were brought. So um, there's quite a few different parts that lead into the decline of Firefox overall. You could probably say that all of them are to do with far bigger better resource competitors coming in and squeezing Firefox out of the market. I mean, there's no question that the antitrust legislation against browser choice on Android came way, way, way too late. I mean, everyone uses Chrome. Firefox has been well and truly squeezed out. But it did try, sort of, back in... 2013, it released a Firefox-branded mobile operating system to compete with Android. So the problem that Firefox faces in Android is most people use Chrome, and that hooks into Google Maps and Google Docs and Google everything, and Firefox kind of sits outside of that ecosystem. But now you're presented with this browser choice screen, as you are on Windows and other operating systems. But Firefox tried to get ahead of that in a way by releasing its own mobile OS Problem was it was kind of rubbish um, and it didn't really work. So the legacy of that kind of lives on on really cheap basic handsets um, in the developing world that have a very small market share. But there's another intriguing factor in this story that Firefox's survival, Mozilla's survival as a company, is almost entirely dependent on cash hand, well not handed out, handed over by its biggest competitor. So Mozilla and Google have a pretty complicated relationship. While they may be competitors in some sense around Firefox and other areas, they're also business partners. So each year, Google pays Mozilla hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties. Um, reports say that this figure is currently in the range of around $400 million per year. Um, and this money is paid for its search for Google search engine to be set as the default in Firefox. So in its 2020 financial results, which are the most recent available, Mo Mozilla listed its total revenue as 496 million US dollars with royalties from search deals equating to around 440 million so the very much the vast majority of its revenue sources um, and Firefox has other default search engine partners such as Yandex search in Russia um, and these royalties overall are pretty crucial uh, but Google is one of the biggest or the biggest in terms of its revenue for these royalties the practice isn't uncommon Google pays Apple huge sums each year in the figures aren't uh, official, but there's been suggestions that this is in the billions uh, for Google search to be the default uh, search engine in Safari. But for Mozilla, it's a crucial part of its revenue. The organization's revenues overall are pretty healthy, but the Google deal could change. Next year, that deal is set to expire um, and be renegotiated. And Firefox says that it doesn't reveal details about its negotiations with Google or other partners, but there's no guarantee that Google will renew at exactly the same levels of funding each year. It's not a great situation to be in as a company when... Um a very, very well-resourced company comes along, effectively eats your lunch, and then maybe gives you some crumbs so that you don't completely starve to death. And it would be fair to say that beyond pure market share, there is a wider importance behind the existence of Mozilla and Firefox, right? Its importance is tied up in really, really sexy things like standards and code bases and regulation and privacy. And in a scene that's dominated by Chrome... Mozilla, even with all of these struggles, remains a really important voice. 
but yeah, Mozilla really matters in the overall structure of the web and the internet uh, as a whole. So over the history of the web, Mozilla and Firefox have been key defenders of privacy and security standards. They've been driven, uh, they've been driving the conversation to make the web a better place in, in total. And Firefox is still a hugely privacy-focused browser. So people I spoke to while I was reporting this story say that uh, Firefox has some of the best privacy features around. People rate it very highly and in many ways it's a lot better for privacy than Chrome. Um, and there are more competitors out there now that are in this sort of like privacy browser focus space. Uh, but Firefox and Mozilla are still a key voice in the overall discussions. And that's important when it comes to standards and the way uh, that web browsers are created as well. So Firefox is one of the only browsers that doesn't rely on Google's code in some way. So the browser market is dominated by Google's Chromium code base, which is the underlying browser engine uh, called Blink. And basically, this is a component that turns all the uh, code and everything that is sent to your phone into visual web pages that you see. You don't see it happening, but it's there making the making all the information visible and readable to you. So Microsoft's Edge, Edge browser, Brave, Vivaldi, Opera all use adapted versions of Google's Chromium. Apple makes uh, developers use its WebKit browser engine on iOS, but other than that, Firefox's Gecko browser engine is the only alternative in existence. So it's also crucially important for diversity in the market and actually making sure that there is a lot more competition and just a different option out there for developers and people creating web browsers. And different ideas as well. We've seen recently Google, well, over a number of years, Google pushing forwards standards that it's designed for wider use across the web. So accelerated mobile pages, AMP have created a way that publishers must format their websites for use on in, in the Chrome browser that adheres to certain standards that are broadly defined by Google in consultation with the wider industry. But Google is trying to, if you like, seemingly reshape the web in its image. And without Firefox kind of there tapping at the door very gently, there wouldn't be too much of a competing voice. But there's another problem here. There's a reason other than power and influence that Chrome has 65% of global market share in terms of browsers, and Firefox has so little. Chrome is better. And I say that as someone who has used Firefox on mobile for a number of years, and up until um, Condé Nast, which is our parent company, um, started making it quite difficult to use Firefox as a browser because everything was, by default, Chrome first. I was using Firefox on desktop as well. And the other problem is that Firefox isn't just worse than Chrome, it's also worse than a lot of privacy-focused rivals that have come along in recent years. But I'm a creature of habit, so I've stuck with Firefox. But the general issue here is that Mozilla's entire suite of software is kind of bad and a little bit muddled. And the company has introduced lots of weird features and made quite a few strange decisions over the years that have kind of compounded the other problems that it's having. Yeah, there have definitely been a few misses in recent years from Mozilla. So a couple of things that spring to mind. It, so it created a encrypted file sharing service a few years ago that was essentially hijacked and used to send malware. And a recent decision to put ads in the search bar when you type uh, also seemed to conflict with its privacy ethos a little bit. So there are these few elements that essentially seem a little bit muddled in the creation and direction of Mozilla more generally. And there's just a lot of focus on the desktop browser from the company but um, there has just been 
I think one of the key things has been just sort of like a lack to really capture that mobile market going forward. So it has been uh, a turbulent few years for Mozilla and at the at the start of the pandemic, uh, sort of early 2020 and then also late 2020, there were two rounds of layoffs at Mozilla that sort of reflected a little bit of the overall wider uh uh, concerns about its future and also sort of like the current state of the business at that time when advertising revenues might have been down from uh, people uh, people behaving differently in the pandemic. Yeah, and those layoffs are one of the things that got you thinking about this story in the first place, right? And you spoke to two former Mozilla staffers who paint a picture of a company that's lost its way somewhat and a failure to realise that Firefox isn't going to get back to where it once was and must reinvent itself has kind of caused a bit of a problem for the company. Yeah, so I spoke to some people that have left the company in recent years and worked on uh, Firefox and various other products within the company. And they say that generally they feel that Mozilla has focused too much on Firefox on the desktop. That's been sort of like the heart and the history of uh, Mozilla. And it's the thing that they know to do best. And a lot of uh, the way that Mozilla works uh, revolves around um, Firefox on desktop. And that's where a lot of development resource is put. And they say that Chrome, in their opinion, Chrome has won the desktop browser war Firefox needs to figure out what it should do next and by this they they sort of mean that essentially um, for the browser to keep on being successful um, or to, to, to reinvigorate people to come back to it or anything like that they need to pick a distinct strategy whether that is going all in on privacy or uh, a different route then i think that that's the thing that a lot of people seem to say uh they wanted firefox to do go down one decide one route go down it and really try to um yeah focus on that and make it a little bit different but also people uh, within the industry that i spoke to as well who look at these things more closely and analyze it uh, also raise the point of if you've left firefox most consumers don't really think about their browsers very often so what would be the reason to go back most consumers apart from grace who has very very deep thoughts about her browser choices um i guess you know generally speaking that is true but a lot of people do put a lot of thought into the software that they install on their mobile phones and, and their computers and how it makes their lives easier or reflects choices that they want to make about privacy or just the kind of way that they they browse the internet or do other things i guess okay so um all is not well at firefox so how does the company well how does mozilla reinvent itself and its browser yeah, and I, I, so as part of this story as well, I was also speaking to some of the team at Mozilla and Firefox that are leading some of the development around the browser and uh, sort of its future. And I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, there is a wholesale reinventing of Firefox happening. So the Mozilla is still focused a lot on web standards and privacy generally for people. But within the browser, um, I got the sense that they want to increase a lot more uh, of its general appeal to people. So while there will be groups who uh, use it for privacy features and things like that, they also want to make sure that there's this group of people that uh, are maybe sort of like young, creative people that are interested in using Firefox. And a part of the way that they're trying to do this is increasing the amount of personalization in the browser um, and they also say that they want to add features to make people's lives easier essentially uh, some of the suggestions were there's a lot people spend a lot of time online and lots of our lives obviously revolve around what we do on the internet and there's a lot of sort of friction in the processes if you're if you're printing something if you're entering credit card details things like that um 
it can be a bit of a pain and a little bit of a hassle to keep doing that over and over again. So these are the sorts of things that they're trying to focus on going forward. And the team said that um, some of the things that we will see, even though they didn't say, tell me exactly what they are over the next year or so, might be things that you wouldn't necessarily expect a browser to be creating or pushing out there. But perhaps the biggest sort of change at Mozilla is making its revenues not so dependent on Google. The company uh, said, well, the company says that it's got plenty of money in reserves and looking at its financial things, it has got backups, it has got money to to, to do. So it's Mozilla and Firefox are not going away and that's not the purpose of really talking about this story, but it is important for Mozilla to build new revenue streams. So uh, Mozilla has acknowledged that for its long-term future, it needs to diversify the ways that it makes money and it started doing this a lot more in 2019 and since then it's released a couple of vpn style projects products sorry uh it also owns the read it later service pocket which includes paid premium subscriptions uh it's moving into advertising a lot more as well and has been doing work around sort of privacy focused advertising as well as the adverts that appear in the browser um, and elsewhere and essentially uh, mozilla's sort of like combined subscription and ad revenue rose from 14 million in 2019 to 24 million in 2020 and the next set of financial figures that the company will release, uh, it expects to show that money that isn't or revenue that isn't from uh, search deals will contribute 14% of its revenue. So that is the way forward for it in terms of like survival, looking to diversify, move away from Firefox a little bit, but bring in money in other ways. This was one of the most read stories, I think the most read story on Wired last week when we published it. So it clearly resonates with people. The question that we asked in the headline of the story is, is Firefox okay? And the point we made right at the top, lots and lots of people used to use Firefox all the time. It used to be this big deal. So there's kind of that nostalgia element around it. But fundamentally, this isn't a story about nostalgia. It's it's going to mean more than that. So for you, as a human being that uses nine different browsers on 20 different devices or whatever it is, why does Mozilla's survival matter? And why should people care about this beyond nostalgia? People definitely do care about it. After, as you said, lots of people read this story, but I got a huge amount of emails coming into me uh, with people expressing their opinions on why they left or what they think that Mozilla and Firefox should be doing next. But I think that ultimately, yeah, it does matter as a browser and that having that choice out there is something that uh, is definitely very important to rival Chrome and some of its privacy features and all of these side of things actually do make a very big difference in terms of the company. But also I would say that it does seem like Firefox has been struggling and is struggling. Um, I would maybe like to see personally a bit more of a sort of clear direction on what it wants to do next. But overall, I'd say that I think that people need to be conscious of the products that they're using um, and also just the sort of like the overall impact that using one thing or one set of products from one service will have on wider markets and companies. All right. So you've got lots of emails. Let's get some more emails. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What do you think about this? Did you used to use Firefox? Have you moved away from it? Are you an impassioned believer in certain types of browsers like Grace? Or do you kind of not really care and just use whatever comes as default on the device that you're using? Podcast at wired.co.uk with thoughts on that story or anything else that's on your mind this week. For our second story this week, Grace has been looking at efforts to make a digital twin of the brain. But Grace, what is a digital twin exactly? Can you explain this concept to people before we get into the details? 
Yeah, so basically uh, the term digital twin just refers to a kind of virtual representation of a real world thing. They're already used quite a bit in industries like manufacturing and aeronautical engineering, uh, where they make and use digital twins of things like ports and power stations. Uh, They've even made virtual twins of whole cities. Uh, Their usefulness lies in the fact that people can play around with the digital models. You know, port authorities can simulate the construction and operation process of a port and city planners can use it to design neighborhoods. Um, And all of this can happen in real time. And inevitably, the technology has started to creep into healthcare as well. So it's kind of easy to see how this might work for something like a port where there's a sort of finite number of moving parts and something like a shipping container that doesn't really do anything you're not expecting it to do. But in biology, this is a very, very different challenge. So how are they applying this concept to biology? So, so far, the idea has been that we could kind of create digital clones of specific organs, maybe like your heart. Uh, Your digital twin could help your doctor create tailored treatments for you. Uh, It could predict how maybe a disease you have might develop, like if you are likely to have a heart attack in maybe a few weeks. Uh, It could even be useful for trialing potential treatments uh, rather than testing them on the actual patient, which is a process that obviously always carries certain risks. And there are already a bunch of people trying to create a digital twin of the heart specifically, although most of the projects are in their early stages. Um, And the project that I wrote about uh, is trying to create a digital twin of the human brain, which is obviously an even more ambitious organ than the heart. Yes, if the heart is infinitely more complex than, you know, a port, then the brain is another level entirely. It's something we don't even really understand. So trying to create a, a virtual identical model of it digitally is really, really difficult what's what's the purpose of this why are they trying to do this so in this case the project which is called NeuroTwin, uh what they're hoping to do um and this is just kind of like the first stage of their of their plans but f- preliminary they're trying to uh, create a model that could predict the effects of stimulation for the treatment of certain neurological disorders such as epilepsy and alzheimer's uh, they're already planning a couple of clinical trials that will kick off uh, about next year. Both of them are just kind of proof of concept trials that will show whether the approach works and can actually improve treatment outcomes for these patients. Um, and from speaking to them, they're planning, if they're successful, to extend the technology to study, to study other aspects of the brain, like disorders such as multiple sclerosis and depression, uh, maybe stroke rehabilitation, and even they're looking at the effects of psychedelics. So it's not like they're creating a kind of one-to-one replica of the brain that will predict what you're going to do if faced with a certain stimuli. It's more like they're trying to create almost a, an electrical model that will predict the way the brain itself might react to certain stimuli, like a broader, a slightly broader scale, if I'm getting that right. So how does this work? How, how are they kind of building these models, these digital twins? So as they explained it to me, all it takes is actually a pretty small amount of data. They take about a half an hour's worth of MRI um, and about 10 minutes worth of EEG readings, both just kind of uh, basic brain scans. And then using that data, they create a computer model that captures, like you said, the electrical activity of the brain. And also a bunch of other things like the brain's main tissues, like the scalp and the skull and the gray and white matter. And... Uh, it will include a network of what are called embedded neural mass models, which, to explain it, are basically just computation models of the average behavior of many neurons connected to each other using what's called the patient's connectome. Your connectome is basically just a map of the neural connections in your brain. 
In the case of epilepsy, some areas of the connectome could be, you know, overexcited. In the case of stroke, it might become slightly altered. I like that you said basically, and then your next words were computational model. <laughs> it's, uh, so in really, really, really simple terms, this is kind of like a wiring model for the brain, like a wiring diagram that shows the way the brain's wired together. It doesn't necessarily show you what's going on on an individual neuron level, but maybe tells you that certain pathways, certain parts of the brain are connected to certain other parts by this route or that route. Yes. And yeah. you can kind of map things out. So and the problem with MRI and EEG is that they're quite fuzzy you know MRI has not got very good uh, spatial resolution EEG has got very good temporal resolution but even worse spatial resolution so it doesn't give you a very accurate picture of like a very very specific mapping so is this really going to be useful for something like epilepsy how's how's this how could this digital twin actually be used to treat say epilepsy for instance yeah I mean the researchers are the first to admit that the model is not going to be perfect they're Mm. not going to be able to capture the complexity of the brain but in the case of epilepsy um, for about a third of patients, the drugs don't work. It's something called treatment-resistant epilepsy. And one alternative treatment uh, is something called non-invasive stimulation, which uh, involves basically just electrical currents being painlessly delivered to the brain. And it has been shown to help reduce the frequency intensity of seizures, but it's still pretty new and it still needs some refining. It's definitely not a mainstream treatment yet, just per virtue of it's still pretty new. And this is where they think the virtual brain could come in handy. So right now, they kind of have to shoot in the dark, just apply stimulation wherever over a long period of time and see if it helps with the seizures. Uh, Where the digital twin could come in handy is that the team can run endless simulations of the computer on their computer until they find where exactly to stimulate the patient's brain and how much stimulation to deliver to get the kind of optimum effect. And that's really useful. You might have seen studies uh, or videos online of sometimes when they used to do surgery on people with epilepsy and they tried to find the the kind of focus where Mm -hmm. they'd have to operate on them while they were live. And I remember seeing a video of, uh, I think it was like a violin player or a guitar player, and they were trying to preserve that skill without Mm -hmm. damaging those parts of the brain. So they literally had them playing the guitar or the violin in the operating theatre while awake, while the surgeon was kind of using this electrical stimulation to map out Mm -hmm. different parts of the brain. Now, when we're talking about the the brain, we're kind of talking about consciousness and the sense of self. And if you're talking about creating a replica of it, you kind of touch on some of those issues. But I guess before we get to that, there's also the kind of practical challenges of, of, of doing this thing. Like we talked about the complexity of the brain, right? Yeah. So like you said, the brain is just incredibly intricate and dynamic and we're basically have only scratched the surface in terms of what we know about the brain. So they're still kind of grappling with that you know Hmm. like how can they create this 3d model that's going to run on their computer that is actually going to be able to somewhat simulate this complexity i mean it kind of seems like a an impossible task and if they do manage to get anywhere close to it that then does raise up a bunch of ethical questions as well right yeah that's kind of what drew me to the story in the first place i mean you think about it like a digital twin of your brain on your doctor's computer and I was surprised to see that actually a bunch of ethicists have already started to think about these issues um, only in the past maybe few years as the technology has kind of made its transition Mm -hmm. into healthcare and biology. Uh, For one, you know, one of the big questions is who gets to own that digital twin? You know, if, for for example, a company is building it rather than, you know, like a nationalized healthcare system, Mm. does the company own your twin? Um, Or does the patient own the twin? Uh, What happens to, you know, the mountains and mountains of data the twin relies on and also generates? And then 
um, you know, like what happens to the twin after maybe the patient dies. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple of other questions like would a patient have the right not to know if, say, their twin predicts that they'll have a stroke in a few months? And then, you know, how does that affect health insurance? Um, and then something that the, the researchers themselves brought up is, you know, we're twinning the brain here. So there's a question of whether the digital twin of the brain will become maybe sentient and whether it will have its own legal or ethical rights. I often feel that bioethicists are running about 20 or 30 years ahead of the rest of us in terms mm -hmm. of the things they're worried about. It touches on a lot of the same issues that come up when we talk about DNA and like companies like 23andMe that, that yeah. are harvest, harvesting is maybe a bit of a strong word, <laughs> collecting people's DNA, right? It's some of those same issues like who owns that data is really important. What happens if the company that built your digital wind gets into financial trouble and decides to sell it on to yeah. you know a third party? Like what about the aggregate data that's used to build those digital twins of the brain? Who owns that? It's really, really interesting. I think the, the idea of a sentient digital twin seems frankly a little bit ridiculous at this point, especially I think I would say, I would I would question personally whether it's fair to call this a digital twin, as we mentioned, you know, we're so far, this is like a crayon drawing compared to the complexity of the actual brain, right? Yeah, and that's something that the ethicists involved in the project are actually really thinking deeply about as well. They've brought up themselves that whether digital twin is even the right term, you know, for, for the average layperson, twin implies that it's an exact carbon copy. Um, but, you know, like we've said before, the brain is so, so complex that, you know, like you said, it's like a crayon drawing. So they're wondering if that could lead to, lead to maybe misunderstandings on the part of the patient or maybe even raised expectations as to what this digital twin could actually do. They're kind of treading this really thin line, whereas I, I assume that using the term digital twin gets them a lot more attention, yeah. right? But then they also risk like getting the, the angry mob coming to their door being like, why are you recreating human intelligence one-to-one? -one? This, exactly. is, this is wrong, when actually that's not really what they're doing. It's more yeah. of like a, a wiring diagram. I think the, one of the reasons I found this story really, really interesting, and, and James, you kind of talk about this in your wired book as well, it, it kind of brings on some of these trends about the future of healthcare being about data and being about, you know, ceding control of your personal data in service of some greater good, right? The Future of Medicine by James Templeton available in <laughs> all good bookstores and online. Yeah, uh, go buy it. It's great. But no, you're right. Um, I guess just to pick up on your point about um, the risk of using terms like digital twins to get attention, which then risks misrepresenting the science that you're actually doing. So Amit, you worked on a story um, recently about brain organoids um, which can be referred to as mini brains mm. and um, they're potentially useful for discovering potential treatments or therapies for conditions like autism um, which is a really really complicated area the science is really really early stage mm. and there's a risk by using words like mini brains that people's imaginations run away with themselves and we start imagining all sorts of sci-fi nonsense and then the second point you made which is about sort of personalized medicine even if this stuff is quite early stage and quite basic having that information to go to someone and say this is something that might work for you rather than giving people treatments that are based on data that's relevant to kind of a population average right so the idea that you get to a certain age or a certain profile you're given a certain treatment well what these two stories are building towards is you're given a treatment that's more tailored to you or specifically tailored to you so that's way less sci-fi and it's something that is realistic in the next few years but i think part of part of the problem is i think the way that you explain these things to people really really matters i think you have to explain to people what risk really means i think, I think people are generally very good at understanding probability and if if you say 
oh, your digital twin says you've got a 20% risk of having a stroke in the next five years. That's really scary. But actually, you don't really know what that means in context, how that relates to what the information was before this digital twin calculated that, how it relates to the rest of the population. And I think as these databases, as these tools, as these technologies become more and more prevalent, we're really going to need to work on the communication around them as well. Yeah, and there's going to come a point in the next few years where people are going to probably sit down with their doctor and their doctor's going to say, oh, we can do this thing. And people are going to be taken aback by the sophistication of it. And having the right thought process behind the delivery of that treatment is going to be really, really important to make sure that people aren't scared or get the wrong idea about what the healthcare system is trying to do for them. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story. It's really, really fascinating. And we'll include a link in the show notes as we do with all the stories that we talk about on the show. Time for a couple of your emails now first up milan writes in from belgium in reference to our brief chat last week about the phrases different countries use to describe heavy rain so in the uk we often say it's raining cats and dogs or we might use something a little bit more purple and we incorrectly said that according to milan that in flanders and the netherlands they say it's raining kittens that milan says that they've never heard anyone say this and the actual phrase is even weirder it's raining pipe stems um I, I, we'd say something like it's raining stair rods or it's rotting down or something like that. Would, would we? Yeah, I think we would. Like the idea that the, like the rain is so heavy that it looks like it's solid. I've actually never heard of that before at all. Yeah, and, yeah. I'm with Matt on this. I've never no. heard that in my life. It's raining pipe stems, guys. No, definitely. Yeah, it's raining stair rods. We could bring it, we could bring it in if you like, try and make it a thing. Yeah. I could, what, what, a stair rod? We could, oh, we could, the phrase. Yeah, sorry. we could yeah. try. <laughs> yeah. I'll bring in a steroid next week and show you what it looks like. Um, yeah, uh, so, um, where did I get to? Yes, uh, Milan says, as a master of um, linguistics, they write, I felt the irresistible need to clarify this. Well, consider it clarified, sort of. I guess podcast at wired.co.uk, we've got lots of listeners from all over the world. Let's get this settled. What? Where are you from? And what do you say when it's raining really, really heavily? Keep in mind that we can't use really bad swear words, because we go out on Apple Podcasts and that might get us a mature rating. But podcast at wired.co.uk, do you say it's raining stair rods? Because it's definitely a thing. Anyway, Matt Burgess, what else was in the inbox this week? We also had, had an email from Alex, uh, who was writing in about the story of age verification or the porn block, uh, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, and they started off the email by saying that they really like the balance of uh, the stories on the podcast and it's hard to find these days. And they have subscribed to the print issues because of the podcast, something that we all recommend you do. Um, uh, but on the porn block, they said that essentially any uh, tech-savvy 14-year-old who wants to look at restricted materials will be able to find a way to do so. And what's worse, it might drive materials underground and become more extreme, which is uh, potentially even more dangerous. And they also say that the key c could be to invest more in education on the reality of porn and its negative effects, funding by porn sites, similarly to the gambling industry. Um, so yeah, essentially they're saying this is uh, a potential technological solution that's being proposed to a very fundamental human problem. Thanks very much for your email and to everybody that wrote in this week. It's podcast at wired.co.uk. Please do get in touch. We really like hearing from you and we'll endeavour to read out a selection of your emails each week on the show. I think that was pretty good for the first in-person podcast in almost two years. Are we happy with the results? Thrilled. That was thrilling. Are you still giddy, Emmett? I'm, so, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I'm so excited. He's sort of rocking back and forth and smiling excitedly. You it's mean, been good. Yeah. 
it's been good lovely to see you all again and we hope um that uh, us getting together to do the podcast in person made a difference to you listening as well thanks so much for listening as always we'll probably be back in the podcast cupboard again next week if not it's zoom for all of us until then take care goodbye bye bye, bye. bye.